The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live, which is a series of conversations about technology with uh, important players in the, in the tech world in Silicon Valley. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. I am glad to have with me today Amit uh, Daryanani, who is the Hardware Analyst and a Managing Director at Evercore ISI, uh, someone who has fascinating takes on the, the world of tech and hardware in particular. Amit, thanks you for, uh, for being with us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. So, Amit, maybe uh, just as to get us started, uh, give us uh, like a, a, a you know just a, a broad uh, view of what you cover and a little bit about your background, and we'll go from there. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Eric. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, as you sort of mentioned, I cover IT hardware and the networking equipment space here at Evercore. Uh, the IT hardware names really range from uh, Apple, which is kind of the big one, obviously out there. Uh, <clears throat> in addition, the PC names like. HP, Dell, uh, the enterprise storage companies like uh, NetApp, Pure Storage, uh, IBM in there. So that's kind of the IT hardware coverage. The networking names are kind of the traditional players. So it's the Cisco's, Juniper's, F5's of the world. Uh, a lot of value name, which appears to be more in uh, fashion yes. offline versus not. So it's that, that that's a little bit joyful right now. Uh, I've done this for about 15 years or way too long, as my wife would put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been around, uh, you know, some of these names for a long time. So let's start. Um, let's start with something you just mentioned, which is that uh, this has been a pretty good period for the hardware names. Um, it feels like there's been a rotation away from some of the high growth, high multiple software names that did so well during a lot of the pandemic, and into some of the much lower valuation um, hardware names. And we've seen that certainly with PCs and with networking stocks. Um, they've all had a really great uh, run uh, recently and over the last, say, I don't know when this really started, six to 12 months. Give me a little sense of what you think is going on there and how it how are they set up as we go into 2022? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if I kind of zoom back a little bit, like at the start of the pandemic around that time frame, right, when these stocks really started doing well, uh, initially what happened, I think, over the last 12 months, call it 18 months, is you almost had a pause on all the negative headwinds traditional tech has had, right? Uh, you know, companies stopped looking at public cloud as an option. It became a bit more of a, how do I make sure my IT keeps working in a normal way? Right. <clears throat> so all the headwinds that you made that people were really worried about, right? The public cloud commoditization of hardware, all of those kind of paused. At the same time, you had these tailwinds because you know, for all of us to work from home, you needed to make sure we all get new laptops. You got, you know, web conferencing equipment. Uh, security had to be invested a lot. And so when I sort of defined this as it was the best of both worlds, the bad things stopped happening, the good things propelled higher, and these companies actually did really well. Uh, that, that was the initial dynamic that kind of played out, I would argue. Uh, what you're seeing of late, though, a little bit more is uh, the debate is, well, is this a new thing or... Will the cyclicality come back in these stocks as you go forward? That's one debate. But the other part you're seeing right now clearly is that uh, as interest rates go up and you're starting to see 
you know, expectations for the Fed raising rates four times this year. Uh, a few months back, it was supposed to be zero times in 2022. Uh, that is putting a damper on the high valuation, high growth assets. Uh, that essentially means the money flow comes towards the names like, you know, IBMs and HPs and Dells of the world. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of the uh, some of the segments uh, uh, that you that, that that you cover. Um, PCs have been on an interesting uh, journey uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, both Dell and HP shares have done very well. Now there's some special elements in each case. Dell spun off VMware. Um, in HP's case, they've been very aggressively buying back stock. Both of them have saw saw a huge spike in in sales. Uh, like we, I mean, PCs were basically not growing. Uh, at, until we hit the pandemic, and then the the story seems to have changed. This also impacted Apple. Uh, we'll get to Apple in a little bit, though. How are you feeling about HP and Dell after what was a really good period? Has been a really good period, um, and so there's now some concerns about maybe PC sales will slow a little bit from here. Right. Yeah, I mean, Eric, it, it's sort of fascinating. So you know, to, to put some numbers on this, PCs we've been selling about 250 million PCs every year for four or five years pre-pandemic, right? That was kind of the run rate you had. Last year, 2021, uh, actually 2020 and 2021, I should say, you went from 250 million units to 350 million units. I mean, that, that's a hundred million more PC units than anyone thought we'd be selling for two years in a row. Uh, now, now I think the question has become, do I go back to 250, 260 million units the way I always did? Or is this just a new reality and I'm gonna keep, keep climbing higher, right? Uh, this is what I'd say. I think my mindset is I don't think you go back to 250, 260 ever. Uh, I mean, not ever. Yeah, low probability you're going to go back there because yeah. I think, you know, the, the reason why you went up by 100 million units, right? Uh, and in the Western Hemisphere, it's fairly normal for kids to have iPads or Chromebooks in school, for example. That is still not happening in emerging markets. So in India and China and the rest of the world, it's not common. That will be a tailwind as you have as you go through uh, over the next few years. But the, the big challenge will be uh, you and I and most enterprise workers have got new computers updated in the last 12 to 18 months. Right. Chances are we're going to hit a pause on our upgrade cycle. So what I see happening is I think the 340, 350 might be real, but I, I think you're going to flatline from here, if not decline a little bit for the next year or two. And so, you know, that, that, that will, I think, be a bit of a drag and headwind for companies like HP and Dell as you go into go through 2022 and 23 potentially. So when you when you look at those two two companies in particular, there are some things that differentiate them. They tend to get lumped in together a little bit. In Dell's case, their PC business is mostly enterprise driven, right? It's about, I think they say it's about 75% of their PC sales. And there is some optimism that what you'll see is uh, well, consumer demand slows. Maybe you'll see a pickup in enterprise demand. Do you buy that argument? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you're right. Uh, Dell is more enterprise heavy. Generally speaking, a more stable place to be in. Consumers are the ones that are unlikely to buy PCs as quickly as they have been in the past, right? Um, more likely to buy airline tickets, I would imagine, and travel uh, versus not. Uh, I, I, I think the challenge you have with Dell, though, or, or, or broadly with all, all, both these companies is I think enterprises will have the same exact dynamic, which is enterprises upgrade PCs on a four-year cadence. If you got one in the last two years, you're not going to do it again. Right. The big catalyst will be uh, when does Microsoft eventually end of life Windows 10? Uh, mm -hmm. you know, Microsoft shutting down support for the old OS is typically a very big catalyst for enterprise upgrades. Right. I don't think that happens for two years. So I would say 
it's it, it's tough sledding for the next two years for Dell and HP. Okay. And that, so are you are you neutral rating it on the stocks? How how are you? What's your thing? Uh, yeah, you know, so so we downgraded Dell uh, back in December, essentially on this call, which is you know, I think PCs have had uh, PCs have a more tough time as you go forward. And to your point, the stock has actually done really well through the EMC uh, VMware. I'm sorry, spinoff that happened, right? right. Uh, so we downgraded stock. HPQ, we still have a buy on it, uh, but the rationale on that candle is very simple, which is HPQ, the company is buying back about 15 to 20% of their market cap every year. It's tough to bet against a stock when, you know, a right. pitfall right. gets taken out every year by the management team themselves. Right, right. One last thing I'm curious on HP is, you know, of course, the other part of the business is printers. And in fact, for if you go back, say, two or three years, a lot of the, the concern about HP was around the printer business and the the consumables prices were falling. They were losing share to like third-party ink producers. And that's all. Nobody talks about that anymore. Um, I, I, then there is a little bit of optimism that printer demand, particularly enterprise printer demand, could pick up as more people head back to the office. And you have like two-year-old printers um, that haven't really been used for, for a while. Yeah. Do, do, are you, do you buy that at all? Or is it really, it's just a capital allocation? You know my, my gut is it's more of a capital allocation story versus printed demand starts to inflect higher. Uh, I, I know the management team will talk about it. And, you know, there's some validity to this, right? Is uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm convinced the printer that's sitting in my office needs to be updated at this point, and I may have to go do it. Uh, but, but the flip side is I may stop using the printer I bought at home uh, at the start of the pandemic. So, yeah. and funny enough, the math, Eric, for HPQ is, they make more money when I print at home versus the office. So kind of yeah, ink yeah. is better for them versus laser jet. Uh, I, I think eventually they'll have a struggle with this. Uh, I just think the buyback is so strong that you're better off betting with the company or owning this asset versus not. Okay. Let's, uh, let's jump to networking. Uh, you know, so, so some of the networking players, uh, Arista has had fantastic numbers in the last few quarters. Um, Sienna uh, recently reported earnings that were really good and with really good outlook, better than people had anticipated. Um, you know, Cisco actually had an okay year last year. And, and I would think if you, if you believe the argument that enterprise spending is going to pick up here as we go back into the office, um, given sort of also the, you know, the rollout of 5G and a few other things that are going on, Seems like things look pretty good still for the networking sector. How are you thinking about it? Which one, what names do you like there or, or, or otherwise? Yeah, no, uh, uh, Eric, if I think about IT spend, so to your point, I think this would be a good year for IT spend. It should be up about 4%. Last year was really good. We were up 6 7%, by the way. But within that 4% IT spend, I think networking will grow 5 to 6%. It, it's going to be the big outperformer. So mm -hmm. if I had to kind of stack up my pecking order, I think networking is probably the best position space. Storage is second, servers is third, PCs is the bottom of the fourth spot, right? That's okay. the way I was gonna <clears throat> think of the world. Uh, now, if you think about that on the networking side, the single biggest driver for high growth over here has been the hyperscale CapEx plans. Right. Uh, you know, Facebook has talked about their CapEx being up 50%, 5-0. Uh, when we add up all the hyperscale CapEx, just for data centers, so not Amazon warehouses, for example, Data center capex for hyperscale companies will grow about thirty percent in twenty twenty two. It grew twenty one percent last year. I.e., this is going to get better as you go forward. And, and certainly, a name like Arista and Sienna, who get a 
third to 40% of their revenues from these hyperscale companies right. are going to benefit in spades from that narrative. So I would say Arista is the name that we've always kind of been a big proponent of. I think Sienna would be there. And then Cisco is interesting. Cisco is kind of the big, broad enterprise play, right? right. If the world generally gets better, values do well, it's sort of the name you want to gravitate towards. But it's, it's sort of the you know, less risky way to play the whole narrative. It, it it seems to me uh, that that in some ways it's sort of a sneaky metaverse play, right? Like if you if you um, if you believe wh whatever you think is going to happen, whatever whatever you whatever whether or not you believe uh, like Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse, he has committed to spending ten billion dollars um, this year, and I would presume that a fair amount of that ten billion dollars will be spent on things like switches and routers. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, it, I think Arista might be, I don't want to say it's underappreciated because stocks had a phenomenal run. Right. Uh, but it, it is a really, to your point, it's a really good way to play this metaverse perspective. And you know, I would also argue, listen, if uh, if there is a metaverse, I, I'm fairly convinced there won't only be one metaverse. I don't think an Apple or Google will let Facebook run with this. Right. I.e., you might have four or five metaverses getting tried out at the same time, and think about the capex that happens if Facebook is in ten billion. What the combination could look like over time. Right. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about Apple. Um, so, uh, Apple uh, is 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 fascinating uh, stock. Always, uh, you know, here we are, a little below three trillion dollars. It seems to get stuck every time it gets close to three trillion dollars. Um, you know, they've had uh, they had. Fundamentally, they've had a fantastic period here, right? I mean, they've every every product category beat expectations in recent quarters. They now they have had a little bit of a drag from component issues that they've uh, that they've talked about. Um, and meanwhile, there's talking about the metaverse. There's a lot of excitement about a product that, of course, they haven't actually announced or even said that they have. Uh, which would be some sort of uh, AR VR glasses, uh, which could be, you know, could we could get a hint of it as soon as um, uh, the developers conference, uh, which should be in June, uh, normally it's in June. How are you feeling about Apple shares here? And what do you think the drivers are for the stock? And, and, and also, like, let's talk a little bit about valuation. I mean, $3 trillion, uh, nobody else has ever had that $3 trillion valuation. That's, that's a historic moment. Uh, it, it absolutely is historic. And, you know, listen, it, I think it also is a reflection of how efficient and how profitable this entire ecosystem for Apple has become over time, right? Uh, um, they just put some numbers out recently on the App Store actually yesterday in terms of what they're paying developers. It, you know, I, I've always thought, right, if I think about Apple as a stock, as a portfolio asset, you know, there's about a billion iPhones out in the world that are being actively used. Uh, and, and, you know, what the number really tells me for the most part, Eric, is anyone that wants and can afford an iPhone has one today, for the most part, right? There, there are very few people left to be convinced you need an iPhone. And so the story for Apple inevitably has to become, how do I monetize this billion plus iPhone users, right? right? Uh, it could be by convincing me to buy, you know, an Apple Watch or a MacBook Pro or AR, VR headsets that I think will come out late this year personally. Uh, or it's how do I spend more on services, right? But there's ways to do this. Right. And, and one of the things that came out of that services data was uh, the average iOS user spends about $100 on Apple services annually, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's about the same price you spend on your Netflix subscription, by the way. It, it's not a very big number, is, is right? Maybe the one, right? Uh, they can grow services, they can grow variables 
25, 30% very consistently. If they can do that, then what I would argue is Apple is going to look a lot like a consumer discretionary, a consumer staple company, uh, maybe a mix, I would say, of a consumer staple and a high luxury good, really, at the end of the day. But these assets that can do that very well tend to trade at 25, 30 times earnings. If you believe Apple can do something in the 6, 650 EPS range, which I think is the right model for them, the stock still has room to run in the 2 to 10 price points. Uh, really fundamentally, what you're buying with Apple, maybe it's not a valuation expansion story. It's the potential they can sustainably do mid-teens EPS growth with, by the way, very, very little bad capital allocation. All the money's going back to you, the shareholder, in right. buybacks and dividends, which is right. sort of nice. Yeah, interesting. So, so the other part of the Apple story that is also very difficult to figure into the equation, I think, is this notion of an Apple car. And so we've been talking about an Apple car literally for years. Um, there's been a lot of speculation. It seems like they're working on something. Um, now, I would note that uh, they, we've had other times in the history of Apple where it looked like they were starting to work on something that never appeared, right? Uh, we were all convinced they were going to make televisions at one point in time, right? Uh, and they didn't do it. And uh, with and with the car, uh, you know, they have a, like, they're doing car play. It's not like they don't have any play on the car. Uh, but of course, that's a big difference than like, let's take on, you know, Tesla and Ford and GM. What's your, are you a believer that this is going to happen? And what do you think it means for the stock if it's true? You know, um, I, 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 I've done this analysis a while back. And um, let's say, if you put it, given the size of Apple, three to the market cap, the amount of money they have, they need to look at every big TAM that's out there in the world, right? It's logical for them to do it. Right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll admit there's a lot, lot of smoke with the Apple car news, so I believe right. they are something that's much more material than I initially thought. Right. Uh, but my budget was going to be, I think the opportunity Apple has by in scaling up the advertisement business is about as good as it is in the Apple oh, stock market, right? And so I, I still struggle to understand why does Apple want to make a box with four wheels and can they do it in a much better way than what Tesla and everyone else is doing it at, right? It, right. It's unclear to me that at least Gen 1 or Gen 2 would look much better unless, this is the caveat I have, they've solved or improved on battery management technology in a dramatic way where I can get extensively better mileage out of my car before I have to recharge it, right? Unless it's something like that, I'm not sure if it's a massive thesis changer for them. It's interesting they'll look at it, uh, but I don't know if it's a thesis changer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, the the TV example is an interesting one because my understanding of what happened there is that they got really close and I think concluded uh, that they just couldn't really make a TV that was going to be that much better than a standard TV. And uh, like, 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 a, like the TVs from, uh, you know, from the high end vendors, uh, whether it's Sony or, or Panasonic or whoever, um, are pretty good and like the quality is good and the images are good and um, and like they just couldn't they weren't going to be able to do something that was meaningfully better even if it was ten percent better that's probably not enough right so that's the question can they do something in cars that is meaningfully better than say Tesla for example well and that's the thing right if you think about Palm Pilot to iPhone. Meaningful delta, meaningful advantage, right? Or your Walkman to your iPod from back in the day, right? Right. And, and point, right? I mean, I, I, I was excited about Apple TV and I thought it would be really cool, 
But the reality was they were, they came to the exact conclusion of the which is we can't do much beyond what Sony has done, right? right. Now, you know, listen, I, I think battery innovation could be interesting. The other part would be if, if you can cross the chasm and believe that we all do not individually need to own cars, but you would almost have a Apple network where you can get your Apple car on demand, right? Some something like that right. you differentiate it would be fascinating. It just doesn't seem like it would happen in the very near term uh, yeah. or the foreseeable future. Yeah. Okay. So another interesting uh, company right now that you cover is IBM. Um, you know, I, I did a story, a cover story a month and a half ago or two months ago on IBM. And the interesting question here, right, is are they, well, to do as a little background, they, of course, just spun off this company called Kindrel, which was their sort of low margin, like IT services business managing data centers, that sort of thing, was not growing. It was very large. It had like 90,000 employees, uh, but it's it's actually a remarkably low value business since the spinoff. Uh, but the idea basically is that it was it was kind of, uh, you know, addition by subtraction and um, and the company now should be set up for uh, so for top line growth for the first time in like a decade. Uh, they should show like mid mid single digit growth this year is what they've said. Now, the stock has had a nice run. I just today, one of your you know peers in the industry downgraded uh, downgraded the stock. How are you feeling about IBM here and how confident are you that the that the turnaround will unfold uh, the way that the company thinks. Yeah, uh, listen, I, I, I think spinning off the services business was actually the right thing to do. Uh, it's something I think we've talked about for years that they should be looking at doing right. this. Uh, listen, I think this to me is this deep value stock, right? If, if they can do what they claim they, they want to do, and I, I would argue they actually are very well positioned to do a lot of the stuff. Mm-hmm. This stock is not going to be at 130, Eric. It's going to be at 200, 250 in two years from today. It, it, it's going to be a unique two-bagger, right? right. If, if they don't do what they claim, then maybe the stock goes back to 1, 110. But the risk-reward is exceptionally attractive for a big cap name like IBM, where you're getting a 5% dividend yield as well, right? And, right. and so I'm definitely intrigued by it. And the biggest thing I'll tell you that I've, um, I'll just think of this last night um, Five years ago, the biggest risk I had with IBM, I would tell people, is you know what, you have to worry about the public cloud, what Amazon and Microsoft and everyone else is going to do to IBM's core business, right? That was really boring. Today, amazingly enough, IBM is more of an enabler to these public cloud narrative versus a competition to it. And I think that's a very interesting shift in the belief system that's happening. Uh, So to the extent that 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 stacks up, I think the consulting business is going to do really, really well. Uh, that this is like the Accenture version of uh, what IBM has. Yeah. The, the whole story for IBM will go down to, can they grow that software business 5-6%? If they can do it, and you know, I think they have bits and pieces that they can do, the right. Red Hat stuff will do, uh, the stock could double from here. Right. Uh, what, I'm less wor- what I'm worried about, less convinced about is, can they grow the old middleware business, right? This legacy IBM stuff, can they right. really grow that business? Or is that going to be a bit of a dead weight for you? Um, that's the one thing I'd say you got to worry about. The other part is, um, I, I, by the way, I, I think the CEO at IBM, Arvind Krishna, has done a phenomenal job in the last couple of years kind of reorienting the portfolio. But I do wonder, you know, do they look at a larger transaction at some point again? And what right. does that help investors? So uh, super intrigued by the name, not fully convinced they can grow consistently what they've talked about. Right. right. And as you say, you do get paid uh, reasonably well while you wait. Right, but five percent yield—it's got to be 
but certainly the highest in your universe, I would uh, venture to say, I, right? I, 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 you know, I, it is definitely the highest in my universe, and it's probably one of the highest out there, other than maybe the at and you know, the telco companies, I think. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great yield with a very compelling risk-reward that you will look at. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, a few other names. Uh, you know, you did a piece recently about um, a research piece about um, some turnaround uh, potential, and you know, there were some real laggards last year. Uh, one that's on your list that I I was sort of surprised uh, really didn't do very well last year was Akamai. Now, you know, Akamai is a content delivery network historically, but they've also kind of morphed into sort of a security play as well mm-hmm. uh, which fits in with your security hardware names why the stock was off like mid-teens i think last year what went wrong for akamai and uh, but you feel good about stock looking into this year tell, tell us about that yeah um, you know it's just so akamai people right i mean there's a big element of the business content delivery networks which just just to level set it right now uh, they essentially provide you the networking the pipes to enable watching streaming content at home right uh, so if you're watching Disney Plus or Apple TV, chances are it's running on the Akamai network somewhere. Uh, Netflix doesn't use them. They use their own stuff. But, you know, essentially, the more I stay at home and watch streaming content, the better Akamai does. Right. And they are the largest player. Right? They are hands down the largest player in that space, right? Uh, 2022, if you imagine, Eric, was a phenomenal year for them because we all stayed home and watched a lot of content. Uh, 21, the compares got a slightly difficult because especially in the back half of the year as things opened up, right? We, you, the CDN business started to do, have some difficult headwinds, started to flatline. Right. The security stuff has grown very consistently throughout that time at a 20% CAGR, right? Now, my intrigue on this name is really that, listen, if I stack this portfolio to a very simple sum of the parts, right. this asset should be worth 40, 50% higher than where it is. That security business, if you may, that's growing 20% a year, very consistently, organically, is worth a lot more than what Akamai stock price is reflecting today. Right. Uh, so it's a, some of the parts that kind of intrigues me. Uh, the other part I would argue is I think that CDN business might structurally be, you know, not, not a massive grow, but might be growing 2-3% more consistently as you go forward. So you know, a stable CDN business that gives you free cash flow and that security business, if they ever decide to do some of the parts, you know, a la the Dell VMware discussion we had earlier or a comment we had earlier, this could unlock a lot of value for shareholders. Okay. Um, another name on your list, uh, which really had a rough year, which was sort of surprised me, was Checkpoint. Uh, this is a traditional firewall company. And this one should have been like a fantastic year for security stocks, right? Like we were worried about all, we had all kinds of security issues that arose. And in fact, the one of the best performing tech stocks of the whole year was Fortinet, which is like one of their competitors, which was up like 140% last year. Yep. What did Checkpoint not what went wrong for them that went that did so that you know that was like the opposite of Fortinet's year. Like, yeah. why did that? you it's so, so, very simple, right? If you look at the firewall security market, right? And firewalls, if you think about the traditional definition, <clears throat> they're meant to put a firewall around your data center, protect things right. that come in and out of a physical data center, right? Akamai. Oh, sorry, not Akamai, Fortinet, Checkpoint, Palo Alto, Cibic, Cisco, four big players in this space, right? Um, but what's happened is your data has become virtual. Your data sits in the cloud at this point, so you don't have the traditional data center yeah. to protect, right? Uh, and so the game has become, well, who can protect my data no matter where I am, right? Uh, 
Zscaler is the best player in that space from a cloud security basis, right? Uh, but what, what Palo Alto and Fortinet have done much better is broaden out the portfolio, have a play both on the public cloud side and the data center side. And that transition of going from on-prem to off-prem hybrid is really what enabled the success at Fortinet. And I'd say the lack or not enabling the transition at the same speed is, is the headache or the headwind that Checkpoint had. Interesting. And how are you feeling about Checkpoint from here? No, it, it, so I, I think it's, it's a, the way we kind of phrased it out was it's a candidate for reversal and performance. Historically, Checkpoint has actually done really well in the year after they've underperformed, just a stock perspective, right? Uh, but fundamentally, I think Fortinet remains the better position asset, maybe Palo Alto is the other one in that space to continue to succeed. Okay. Um, I wanna, we're, we have a few minutes left. I want to run by you two names that I think um, my dog's barking in the background, but uh, two names that um, uh, have some interesting value appeal. Um, one that had just sort of an awful year is Poly. This was, uh, uh, you know, this is the headset and uh, uh, and uh, the conferencing phone business, which is the combination of the old Plantronics and the old Polycom. Uh, which has struggled mightily. They've had, um, uh, in particular, um, uh, component issue problems in the last year. And the stock has been terrible, but it looks super cheap. I've written about this uh, before, and uh, there's always been some speculation that maybe they would be an acquisition target. They, you know, Their market cap's down to around, a, I don't know, a billion dollars or so. What do you think happens to Polly? Yeah, you know, listen... Um... This is a really fascinating story, I think, right? Because uh, in a way, if, if I was to, if you were, if you were to think about it, um, all the stuff that we talked about in PCs at the start of the conversation for Dell and HP should have been the same for Poly, right? I mean, right. one of the things we all bought was webcams and headsets at home. I feel mm-hmm. um, they didn't benefit the same way, and part of the issue they had was the supply chain issues got the better of them, right? And so you saw companies like Logitech, for example, actually benefit right. a much more bigger way than not. Yeah, they right? had huge growth. Uh, exactly. And there's no reason why Poly should not have had that growth, except for the supply chain challenges, right? And, and so now the challenge, I think, for them has become they lost some market share, right, in, 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 their, in their core businesses because they didn't have supply chain. Those customers, those enterprises really typically ended up going to who had supply, which is, let's just say, Logitech for argument's sake, Right. Right. Now, the challenge is once I went to Logitech, do I want to go back to Poly? Because these are all fairly standardized headsets, right? right? And so did you lose this share till we get to the next technology transition, whatever that may be? And right. then we'll decide what happens, right? That's a part I struggle with that, right? Is I think they may have lost some structural market share which makes it challenging. Now, <clears throat> I'll say the flip side of this is as we go back to work at some point, right? Um, some hybrid workspace. The reality is a lot of these calls will happen on Zoom, even if you're back in the office. Uh, And if that's the case, then their video conferencing equipment will eventually see a really, really good tailwind. Uh, And so, you know, I'm with you. I think it's a deep value name. It has M&A potential to your commentary. I think in the public domain, Logitech had looked at this asset diligently a couple of years ago and had discussions around it. this is an interesting asset. And if you can find someone that can manage and run supply chain very well, uh, this might be a very good acquisition candidate for them. 
Yeah, I wonder about HP and Dell, both as um, add-ons to their PC business. You know, HP has made an acquisition in this uh, in a related space for uh, uh, in a, with a gaming peripherals company, and but I guess we'll see. It hasn't. Nothing's happened. Yes. No, uh, it's HyperX. I think is the name. Eric. HyperX. Yes, thank you. Uh, HP bot. Um, but no, you know what? HP, I think, has talked about three, four growth growth vectors. Uh, video conferencing is one of those growth vectors. Uh, same with Dell. I think this involving. Uh, Polly's margin profile is much more attractive to either one of those. So it, it would certainly be an interesting combination if they ever decide to go down that path. Okay. One other uh, last one I want to touch on before we wrap up here is um, HP Enterprise. Uh, this is, of course, is the this is the non PC HP. This is the PC. This is the they do um, servers and uh, enterprise storage. They own the old Cray supercomputer business. They have a bunch of moving parts. They have a, a networking business. The stock statistically is really cheap, um, and it seems like the kind of thing where they could do some, uh, take some measures from a, a spin-off pieces or sell-off pieces. How are you feeling about HPE? They actually had a reasonable year last year. The stock did, um, uh, um, but uh, it still looks like a pretty cheap stock uh, from a statistical point of view. No, it, it, uh, I, I think Eric, to, to put a punchline on that, it's I think in the top five cheapest names in the S and P five hundred right now, despite <laughs> the one it's had. So like that, that's how cheap it is uh, at eight times earnings or whatever it's trading at, right? Um, listen, uh, you know, we upgraded this name uh, middle of last year. It was around twelve bucks. It's done really well since then. Right. It, it really, my, my take was th this is sort of like, and I believe this. This is like owning Dell eighteen months ago. We just got to figure out who's the Michael Dell in this equation right now for that. Uh, but but the point I had was some of the part spaces, without getting very aggressive, uh, this asset should be worth in the $30, $35 billion range. Uh, $30, $35 stock price, I'm sorry. It's at 17 bucks today. Uh, they have standalone assets, like they own this 49% stake in a networking company in China called H3C, that I think alone will be worth $78 billion for them. Uh, who, then, who owns the rest of it? Who owns the rest of H3C? So, yeah, so the rest of it right now is owned by Xinhua Group or I said Unisplendor is the entity, right? Which is actually having some issues. But that asset is actually on the block in the public domain, and Alibaba is the leading candidate to buy it. And so it's it's Unisplendor that owns it. Alibaba is looking at it. If the deal happens, it's going to peg HP Enterprises' stake in that business at about seven eight billion dollars. That is. 35% of this market cap right there. Right. Uh, they have Aruba, by the way, which is a really interesting networking business. Right. Uh, we talked about networking a bit earlier. Uh, if you give it a Juniper or Cisco-like multiple, not, not Arista, just Juniper or Cisco, that's worth about $10, $11 billion. Right there is the stock price. Everything else right. that you said, server, storage, Cray, is on the house for them, essentially. So I, I, I think it's interesting. I just think you need someone that's willing to execute on a, you know, again, what Michael Dell did at Dell kind of strategy. Right. right. Well, we'll see. Well, um, we can keep going, but we've, uh, we're already way over time. Um, uh, Amit, thank you. Thank you so much. Always great to talk to you. We really appreciate your, uh, your joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me. And thanks to everyone else for joining us as well. Um, uh, I'll be back with another tech interview in two weeks. Uh, meanwhile, join us again tomorrow uh, when my colleague uh, Carlton English will be hosting a conversation on the 2022 outlook for uh, female founders and venture investors. Should be a great conversation. Thanks for being with us. Be well and be safe. Thank you. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. 
Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.